Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. The opposition wants a parliamentary committee to investigate allegations that were first reported by Global News of foreign interference by China in the 2019 federal election. I think it's very troubling that the Prime Minister has known about allegations of foreign interference in Canadian elections since last January, and he hasn't taken any action. I haven't seen any evidence of action from this government to protect our democracy from that kind of foreign interference. I think Justin Trudeau needs to explain why he knew and why he did nothing. The Prime Minister has not confirmed that he was briefed about allegations of Chinese interference back in January of 2022, but he says he is concerned about foreign actors operating on Canadian soil and insists his government is taking action. We have taken significant measures to strengthen uh, our, uh, the integrity of our elections processes and our systems and will continue. Uh, to invest in the fight against election interference, against foreign interference of our democracies and institutions. The allegations of foreign interference by China comes as the government is set to announce its long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy and as the Prime Minister launches an extended trip to the region. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper. He broke the story. Former Canadian ambassador to China David Mulroney and national security expert Akshay Singh. Thank you all for joining us. A topic of great interest to Canadians and of great concern. Sam, not everyone is familiar with this incredible story that you broke, which is very concerning. Can you walk us through what you found out from your sources about Chinese interference in the 2019 election? Uh, I gathered from uh, Canadian intelligence sources that uh, in early 2022, senior Canadian officials, including the Prime Minister, were briefed on some very concerning and long-running CSIS probes. The most stunning allegation was that Chinese consulate officials in Toronto directed a large clandestine transfer of funds to influence the 2019 federal election. Uh, the transfer was run allegedly into a network of uh, witting, in some cases, affiliates of the Chinese Communist Party, and that this included at least 11 federal candidates wow. and numerous candidate uh, staffers. And so uh, other allegations in these reports briefed to the prime minister were that the Chinese Communist Party specifically targeted Canadian MPs who had voted in ways that uh, worried Beijing, such as uh, the 2021 vote about a declaration uh, of a, a genocide in Xinjiang. Some of those MPs allegedly that voted in favor of that declaration were targeted by Chinese intelligence to discover if there were uh, companies in their writings that could be leveraged for economic links to China. A last extremely concerning allegation is uh, against the so-called uh, covert global fox hunt operations run by Beijing. The allegations are that uh, Chinese police are running secret operations on Canadian soil to uh, repatriate through force and coercion in some cases Chinese citizens that Beijing wants to bring back to that nation. That seems pretty alarming and the prime minister and, and cabinet knew about this. Actually what's What's your response as a national security expert? Does, does this come as a surprise to you? Uh, first of all, I should say thanks for having me on. But I don't think this is imminently surprising in the sense that uh, China is conducting foreign interference operations in Canada. I think what's new in these allegations is the depth of what's happening and the extent to which they're actually taking place in the country. 
I think one thing that Sam's pointed out, which I would like to uh, make sure that I point out as well, is that it's not just about elections. Uh, obviously, foreign interference is a much broader problem that spans multiple issues. For example, in the case of forced repatriation of individuals back to China or targeting of diaspora groups. So in my opinion, what we're seeing in the allegations is somewhat analogous to what some of our partners have seen, for example, the FBI in the United States and in Australia. Uh, you know, David, you were Canada's ambassador to China. Uh, were you surprised to hear that the prime minister and key members of his cabinet have been briefed on this threat, but it doesn't seem like there's been any explicit changes to laws or at least nothing they've talked about publicly to try to address this? Not so much surprised, although I was deeply impressed by the report that uh, Sam has, has brought to the table um, as discouraged, because uh, has, as has been noted, this story has been growing for two decades. CSIS has been bringing report after report forward about Chinese interference operations, Chinese efforts to cultivate with elites uh, in politics, in academics, in, in journalism. Uh, and uh, the introduction of money into uh, Canadian election campaigns. What's astonishing about this latest report is its size, ambition, and complexity. To run this through 11 different campaigns is, is astounding, to be able to do that and to control it. And then what's most disturbing is to conduct this research uh, against MPs who have had the courage to speak out against China's gen uh, genocide in Xinjiang and to threaten them economically. It's it's frightening because it, it probably works in some cases. And I, I think we need to be taking a very deep, deep look at um, what China is doing uh, to bring a threat to our autonomy as a country, to our ability to operate independently. I had a, a conversation with a very senior liberal staffer whose identity we won't disclose, but they said, well, you know, people are going after the story and the conservatives are going after the story and absolutely China's a threat. But if you want to win in, in Canada, you have to be very careful what you say. And part of what you talked about, Sam, were disinformation operations mm -hmm. um, and the way that the Chinese Canadian community was being targeted and often threatened. And you addressed that when you talked about Operation Fox Hunt, which basically um, are alleged to be coerced repatriations of Chinese citizens who are wanted by the Chinese government in Beijing that are happening on Canadian soil. What you have is just an incredible story, and I know how hard it is to get sources like this to talk to you. So why do you think it is that these intelligence sources think this information needs to come out now? Well, we've seen over the years uh, one or two important, we can call them leaks from Canadian intelligence that make it into journalism. The journalists responsibly source the information, and I think that information is coming out. In fact, I know I've been told there's a, a great deal of frustration in Canadian police and intelligence that for some reason, uh, China, the, the interference threat from China, which is, by the way, according to these briefs, bigger than any country in the world, more aggressive, is not being actively counted by policy on Parliament Hill that, in fact, has been recommended by parliamentarians to this government. So, I, to me, it only makes sense that deeply frustrated and concerned for their country's future, uh, officers, uh, sources are coming forward with information to me. And you're exactly right about the targeting of critics who stand up. And, and for example, a source or a person, a former MP Kenny Chu, was targeted because he raised a foreign agent registration bill in 2021 to deal with this problem, and he was then subsequently targeted by this very 
election interference network, and that's the threat right there. Well, and I want to be fair because I mentioned the liberal staffer who I was speaking to, but the conservatives were also implicated in your reporting as well. It was not just one party. Um, Akshay, why Canada? Why is China running these kinds of significant operations here and, according to sources, targeting us more than they are targeting other countries? That's an excellent question. Number one, I think we should acknowledge the fact that Canada is a member of the Five Eyes community. And, you know, despite this tendency in Canadian politics and political science to kind of lessen our impact on the global stage, we do have a voice and that voice does mean something. At the end of the day, what the Communist Party of China and the government of China want is to legitimize its regime and to ensure the stability of the Communist Party of China's rule. What that means is making sure that there are no voices out there, either domestically or internationally, contravening Chinese government policy or perhaps criticizing the government of China. And it's very important for those countries that are immediately in the orbit of the United States, for example, Canada, to be on board with what China is trying to do. Uh, it's a tactic that China has used very successfully, for example, through engagements in Europe, through the 16 plus 1 and 17 plus 1 framework. They negotiate very well bilaterally. They don't like it when countries come together to try and push back against Chinese aggression internationally. And Canada, as an important member of NATO and the Five Eyes, has a voice that could be lent to legitimize what China is trying to do internationally. And some of the interference that you're seeing in Canada is probably linked to that. They want Canadians to speak up positively about China internationally and domestically, and they don't want us to challenge them on things like economic coercion and human rights violations. Uh, and, and David, what's your thoughts on, on the government's response to this? I mean, are, are they falling into that trap? We've already fallen into the trap. And, and the problem is, uh, is twofold. One, that like Australia and the United States and Germany and Britain and others, we are targets for this kind of interference. And I'd say that one of China's objectives, as Akshay has mentioned, is to split countries away from the United States. But our particular problem is we're not just another one of those countries. We're uh, alongside the United States. We, are, we benefit from the closest possible relationship with the United States, but one that also depends on our reliability. And our reliability is now being called into question. And we can see, to me, the level of aggressiveness was most evident in the, before this latest report in the Meng Wanzhou uh, case, where the, the CFO of Huawei uh, was arrested and, and held for extradition hearings uh, pending possible extradition to the United States. Of course, our two Canadian citizens, the two Michaels, uh, were essentially kidnapped by the Chinese state. But this was China saying, Canada, increasingly, we're going to tell you how you can use your laws. And we're going to tell you which laws apply to uh, the world and, and, and which laws we're exempt from. So it was a direct effort, not just to get Meng Wanzhou back, but to signal in future, do not apply your extradition treaty to people we consider to be important. The whole objective is to reduce our autonomy and to make us much more likely to look over our shoulders, to check in with China, to exempt China from things that should apply to China. And so the, the peril for Canada is significant. And I don't think the government has picked up on that. And I don't think it's inclined to act. Sam, we just have a few moments left. But if the government were to act, what are your sources saying would be the most important actions for them to take to try to insulate Canada? 
Well, I understand that, again, former MP Kenny Chu's uh, bill, which would call for a foreign, foreign agent registry. That So if you're working under the table for a hostile regime, you need to declare. That would protect democracy. That's step one. Sources say we need to go further. And if you are working for a foreign nation and you don't declare, you face jail. This would, uh, this would put the laws in place so that uh, CSIS and the RCP have a prosecutorial endgame for this modern, complex foreign interference that uh, the evidence I'm seeing is it's a vast campaign targeting Canada deeply. Sam, phenomenal and incredibly courageous reporting. We know there's more to come from you on this file, and we look forward to hearing it. Thank you to you and to Akshay and David for joining us today. Veterans' disability claims are supposed to be processed within 16 weeks and assessed, but the current Veterans Affairs Canada wait times are much longer than that. On average, it's 43 weeks, and even those who do have access are often saying that they feel abandoned and forgotten by Canada. Global News found that a VAC employee repeatedly offered medical assistance in dying to a veteran with a traumatic brain injury and PTSD. Now the VAC Employees Union and some veterans advocates are calling for the Minister of Veterans Affairs to resign. With the workers calling for his resignation, I think it's, it's, it's well warranted. And frankly, uh, as a member of his advisory committee, I would, I would suggest the same. So you think the minister should resign, Bruce? 100%, yes. Joining me now is the Minister of Veterans Affairs, Lawrence McCauley. I know this is, uh, it's a bit of an awkward and tough way to start an interview, but you're an experienced politician. I haven't seen veterans and Veterans Affairs employees this angry since Julian Fantino. Do you think you should resign? Well, my responsibility, of course, is to serve veterans. And I can tell you that uh, I've met with the union and uh, many union members over over the last number of years that I've been in Veterans Affairs, and I will continue to do that. But my job is to make sure we provide the services for veterans and the employees be in place to provide that service. And that's what I am doing, and that's what I will continue to do. I guess they feel that you're not doing that, though. I mean, when, when I watched your testimony at, at Parliament, at committee, I noticed you passed a lot to the deputy minister and officials. And what I've heard from some veterans and some employees is, look, He's the minister. It's his responsibility. Why isn't he taking that on the chin and dealing with this? Well, of course, as you know, uh, Mercedes, it's when I found about this, out about this issue, immediately I contacted my deputy and asked him to make sure he conducted an investigation, and, uh, and that's what he did. And, of course, with that, too, we put an information process in place, an education program, in, in fact, at Veterans Affairs to make sure that uh, frontline Veterans Affairs staff understood that we have no business whatsoever dealing with MAID. We cannot, a veteran can bring up what they wish, but it's not, if some veteran brings it up, they're instructed to bring it to their supervisor. That's what the situation is and will continue to be, but the staff needs to know that, and they will. Where is that investigation? Because I know when you testified, you said you believed that this was a one-off. There's lots of veterans who are worried that this is a broader, a broader problem. So what have you done to conduct that investigation, and uh, how are you able to know that this is an isolated case and, and assuage the fears of, of veterans out there? Well, of course, the only way you can uh, deal with this issue would, of course, instruct the, de uh, the deputy to c conduct the investigation. And also, when it's done, that the, uh, and the education program for the frontline workers 
is delivered and to make sure that the, that the investigation is public after it is done, and that will take place. So we will be able to, to look at the investigation, veterans will, the media will, and, and assess how yes. you determine that there was, this has only happened once or twice? This is the investigation, and the investigation is ongoing. The investigation has f found, from what I know about the investigation, it's the responsibility of the department and the deputy to con conduct the investigation, and they're doing that. To my knowledge, at this time, there is one isolated case, and uh, but that's a totally and completely unacceptable. And we have to make sure that veterans feel fully comfortable coming to Veterans Affairs. And I might add that they do at the moment, and we do not want issues to make sure they don't feel comfortable because they deserve these. These programs are put in place and uh, to make sure that veterans can live as quality a life as possible, and we want to make sure that they feel that way. Last year, our, we had an increase of 18,000 applications. That's good. We want to make sure that continues to be, because they have to feel fully comfortable to come to Veterans Affairs, and that is my responsibility and the deputy's responsibility, and we're doing that. Do you think that veterans feel confident coming to Veterans Affairs when it takes 43 weeks on average to process their claims, particularly in this economy where things are really expensive and some folks who have a disability claim like that might not be able to work. That could be a really stressful financial situation. I can understand fully, the, as I indicated when I was appointed Minister of Veterans Affairs, the backlog was totally unacceptable. At that time it was over, I think, something like 57 weeks. The actual backlog today, over 16 weeks, is, uh, it's down to 25 weeks. Not good enough at all. But, but the average, according to the Veterans Ombudsman, is 43 weeks. If you take into account the applications we received yesterday and a few days ago. But, that, but isn't that fair? Isn't it from the time that a veteran puts it uh, in? Well, it does take time to process applications and what we have to meet and what we have to meet and what I indicated when I became Minister Deputy uh, of Veterans Affairs, that we would... Uh, put a program in place to make sure we met the national standard uh, in, in two years. Now, we, we're going to be a little bit delayed on that, but we hope to have it down to 16 weeks by next spring or summer. And that would be 80% of the applications uh, processed by 16 weeks. That is where we said we were going, and that's where we will end up next year. I mean, your government has been in power for seven years. There were a lot, of, a lot of promises that were made to veterans that were either broken or ignored, that they'd never have to fight their own government in court again, that they would go back to the original pension system, that you would hit 16 weeks. And what struck me about the Maid case and, and how veterans reacted was they actually believed, in some cases, this is that the government thought it would be cheaper for them to just die. What that says about how veterans feel they're being treated, about how they've been alienated, not just by the government, but by Canadian society. How do you address that and make them feel confident in what you're saying you need them to feel confident to do, to, to trust Veterans Affairs and to trust you as the minister to take care of them? Well, of course I want to make sure that happens, but it's important to realize when we formed government, the previous government had uh, fired one-third of the Veterans Affairs staff and, uh, and had cut benefits to veterans, closed nine offices. We had a hard start without any question. We, it was indicated at the time by 
perhaps even by your media, I don't know who did, but it was take 10 years to get back to where we should be. We are now back to full staff, and, and that is so important. What I committed to do when I became minister was to make sure, we, as I said, to meet the national standard. By, uh, we will have it by next spring or summer. It will be uh, 16 weeks for 80% of the applications. And you're, you're confident that that is going to happen this spring? Yes, I am confident, and the process has continued to come. It's not a success, Mercedes. It's not a success, but it's, we're on the right track. And the only time it will be a success is when we get to the national standard. Mm -hmm. And that by next summer, we expect to have that. Vitally important for veterans. Because really, when you look at it with our government compared to the previous government, we put $2 billion a year extra into the pockets of veterans every year. Each year, $2 billion more. And, and That's important. Oh, sorry, where's that number from exactly? From uh, the government. But, but what's, what, where's the $2 billion that's going to veterans? It goes in, into uh, benefits that, that uh, veteran receives. Is that because you increase their benefits or yes. there's more veterans applying? And, of course, more veterans applying. Right, and, and, and people and are course, aging, right, who when, fought in Afghanistan. When now. you get the offices open, which they're all closed, and you get the staff back, people feel confident about coming to Veterans Affairs, and we, and we have the process in place in order to meet what we committed to meet, and we will. But it's also important that we have all the other programs. You know what they are, of course, the education program, uh, uh, dealing with, with chronic pain and PTSD, all these uh, special uh, uh, programs were put in place. Vitally important for veterans because veterans suffer. Mental health is a big issue. Huge issue, huge issue. And, and there is still an epidemic of veterans who are taking their own lives by suicide. Very, very difficult, very difficult at this time of year in particular. Um, one last question I wanted to ask you is about caseworkers who play such an important role because they actually meet with the veterans, they know the veterans, they help them navigate the system. We've been hearing from caseworkers and from veterans charities like Vets Canada that there's a real shortage there. And I saw a press release from your government saying that you were going to increase funding to maintain the current levels. But will you increase the number of caseworkers in the system who are able to deal with these situations so veterans aren't waiting so long? What we have to make sure with case managers is we have enough of people to make sure that they can meet the commitment that we made. And that's to meet the national standard by next spring or summer, and we will. Does that mean hiring more? At the moment, we are basically on track to do that, and we will continue to make sure, I will continue to make sure that we have the appropriate number of people in place to do that. Vitally important, vitally important for the veterans, because Canadians care. Minister McCauley, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. On Friday, Canadians paused to remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. On Remembrance Day in Ottawa, a powerful image. The Veterans Parade was back for the first time since the pandemic. We here at the West Block would like to thank all of our beloved veterans and those who are still serving in uniform for all you have done and continue to do for our country. We see you and we appreciate you. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block.